From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As the field continues to get whittled down in Omaha, the Gators are fighting hard to stay among the living. Kevin O'Sullivan's team started off on the wrong foot with a frustrating loss to Texas Tech, but bounced back with a strong performance against Texas, sending the Longhorns home and setting up a rematch with the Red Raiders. On today's show, we'll cover the College World Series from all angles with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. Plus, We'll hear the amazing story of how soccer's Lauren Evans battled leukemia throughout her freshman year and came out victorious. But first, every game from here on out is an elimination game for the Gators as they try to get to the finals and wipe the slate clean. And although they've got a number of quality arms to send to the mound, it's too bad Jackson Kowar can't throw every inning given how dominant he was against Texas. The first round pick is the biggest reason the Gators are still in Omaha, and we begin our chat with Scott by asking to put his performance in context. Well, Adam, he did everything he had to do and more. I mean, obviously, whenever your season's on the line, you're looking for your starting pitcher to set the tone. And Jackson Coar went out there and uh, put on a show. I mean, those career-high 13 strikeouts against a Texas team that featured Cody Clemens, He's the best power hitter who was out here in this field. He had 24 home runs. Uh, Johnson India was second. So it was a lineup that was dangerous. And Jackson Carr, we all know what he's capable of doing. We've seen it back at McKeithen Stadium in the SEC. And we saw it. You know, you got to remember, he was the guy on the mound last year when the Gators closed out the championship uh, against LSU. He was the guy actually on the mound getting that final out. So he had some uh, experience in Omaha. And it obviously uh, came through when he took the mound on Tuesday. And uh, he was really, he said the first inning, you know, he had a couple of guys on. He said he didn't feel he threw a good pitch to the first three batters of the game. But he uh, struck out the final two batters there, worked his way through to second. And then he has sensed in the third something shift because he struck out the side. And, you know, some of the pitches were impressive. I mean, his fastball was there was a couple clocked at 97, 98 miles per hour. And he's always, you know, he tops out usually in the mid nineties. So he was really pumped up getting a little, little bit more velocity. And of course the change up is the pitch that has always made Coar a difference maker. Uh, you know, if not the best change up in college baseball, certainly one of the top two or three, uh, the Kansas city Royals, uh, liked his arm so much, you know, they made him their second first round pick right behind Brady singer uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, he went out there, and from the third inning on, he was just dominant. You know, hadn't been a pitcher since Garrett Cole and Trevor Bauer for UCLA. Those are those are two pretty familiar names to strike out 13 in the College World Series. Both of those guys did it for the Bruins back in 2010, but Coar did it in six and two third innings. I mean, you got to think about that. He recorded 20 outs and 13 of them were strikeouts. And here, Adam is what really most impressed me, and I, it didn't hit me until you know, late in the game or after he took out and it was being talked about in the press box, all 13 were swinging. So that just shows you right there mm. how much the ball was moving. And, and Cody Clemens after the game said that a lot of their players, his changeup was so good that 
it looked like a fastball when he was releasing it and it would just drop in the and sink and you know they had no chance and the you know it was exactly what florida needed they're going to need more of those kind of performances uh throughout to extend their stay here because uh you know they had to win that game and now up next is texas tech and uh they're gonna have to win that one to keep it going but but it just in terms of a a big performance on a big stage we saw austin Langworthy in the super regional with the home run you know we've seen alex fado last year in the college world series uh what coar did certainly you know was just as good of an individual performance if not better 13 strikeouts, which was a school record for any Gators picture in a College World Series game, and the most in a College World Series game for a pitcher who didn't go seven innings in 40 years. So, again, overall, just a very impressive outing. You mentioned next game up is Texas Tech, another elimination game, and certainly uh, the Gators are hoping to play better than they did the first time against Texas Tech. It was not a very good performance in their World Series opener. And really, Scott, kind of a string of performances that that don't look like a national championship team at the moment. Now, the beauty of this tournament is you don't have to look like a national championship team until you're holding the trophy. You just have to find a way to get there up until that point, which is kind of the way I feel about the 2006 Florida football team. They didn't look like a championship (laughs) team until the national championship game. But getting back to baseball... I'm curious, and I think a lot of fans are right now, I know you see this on Twitter, is this enough right now? If you look at the struggles they're having to get hits with runners in scoring position, you know, the, the issue with J.J. Schwartz is clearly not himself. Jonah Durand has struggled unbelievably since that regional performance. Does Florida have enough right now going their way to really make a run and, and try to win this thing? You know, you can't sit here and say that they're playing the best ball they have all season. If you've watched this team, we all know that they play at a much higher, higher standard early in the year. I mean, we've talked about how it was almost like cruise control until that last week of the regular season. Singer had the hamstring issue. Schwartz uh, had the fractured hand. They lost six of seven going into the NCAA tournament. And while they advanced out of the Gainesville Regional and the Super Regional, you know, they lost the game in each. and Whatever it is, they've done well the last two years when they faced elimination. Going back to last year, Adam, and then, you know, those two games I just mentioned and the win against Texas, they're 6-0 and in the past two seasons when, when they're staring elimination in the face. I mean, that's hard to do. Uh, it is certainly hard to do three more times to get to the championship series, which is what they'll have to do here in Omaha. But I think to your point, if Florida wins this thing, it was no different now than it was I think three months ago it's going to be because of their pitching they have the deepest pitching in the country they have the from top to bottom the best staff that's still in this college world series it's going to be a matter of what can they get those hits when they need them and they got them against Texas uh, on Tuesday you know they missed some chances early had the bases loaded early in the game and didn't score uh, you just wondered as the game went on, when is that big hit? Is it ever going to come before their season perhaps ends? And then Nelson Maldonado taps a single up the middle that made it 2 nothing. Uh, just reached his bat out there and kind of dribbled it up the middle, gave him an extra run. And then, of course, Jonathan India followed with a three-run bomb. And, and you know, talking to Maldonado after the game, he said that was like the lid came off. I mean, they were starting to fill it because up until his hit, they were one for 15 in the World College World Series with runners in scoring position. Mm. 
Now they're three for 17, which isn't a lot better statistically. But getting two to end that game, they, they got to be able to take something out of that confidence-wise into this next game. And, and Kevin O'Sullivan, he's wanted to see them kind of shorten their swings a little bit. He, he thought some guys had started to overswing, which is which is easy to do here in Omaha because the ballpark's a lot bigger than what they're used to. I mean, India, before his home run, uh, that actually left the ballpark. He drove a ball deep to center field uh, in that Texas game that would have easily been out at most SEC stadiums, certainly at McKeithen Stadium. But here it was a 404-foot out. So you got to be careful. Always remind the guys, just try to get the ball in play. Don't get homer happy. And uh, if the offense can do enough, just because the pitching staff is going to keep them in there. So it's just going to really be a matter of, you know, if the offense uh, gets some of those clutch hits and get it from different guys. I mean, India can't be the guy doing it all the time. He's going to need some help. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. But I still think that they, they had their built. For this, they're built for a uh, tournament like this because of their starting pitching and and Michael Byrne at the back end of the bullpen. So the question then turns to Texas Tech on Thursday night, maybe Thursday night. The way that things have gone with this World Series, uh, who knows when that game might actually get played? Feels like it's in Gainesville with all the weather delays. <laughs> but what are the expectations for Florida pitching wise? We know that Texas Tech has one of the best offenses in the nation. That you're going to see no matter what. But for Florida. Obviously, Jackson Kowar can't go out there, and probably Brady Singer can't either. What does it look like for Kevin O'Sullivan putting that puzzle together? You're going to probably see Jack Leftwich, the freshman who uh, came through, you know, in the in the super regional or regional form. He's had some outstanding starts at different points of the year. I think they're hoping to, uh, you know, send him out there Thursday against Texas Tech and get, you know, hopefully five, six innings out of him. Get. Jordan Butler in there maybe to bridge the gap to Michael Byrne. Uh, some other options there in the bullpen. Uh, we still haven't seen Tyler Dyson. Maybe if Lethwich struggles, they could go to Dyson early or Tommy Mace. But I think ideally you'd have Lethwich start that game. And then if you win that game, you know you're going to have to beat Arkansas twice on Friday and Saturday to get the championship round. And you know, I think at that point you're probably going to see Brady Singer on four days rest Friday, and then coming on Saturday, if they were to win that game, then, you, you know, you got Mace, maybe Dyson, depending on how the other uh, two games worked out. But there's certainly some options. I don't think we'd see Jackson Coar obviously, until if they did make the championship series. Uh, that would be on Monday of next week before we probably see him again. But again, um, that's why I, I go back to the point. There's not a lot of other coaches out here left, Adam, that – can you know sit and look at his roster and still pencil in names like we just mentioned? Uh, that's what gives them a, the advantage. Now on the flip side, you like we just spoke earlier, it's going to come. You got to get some hits because these other teams, while they don't necessarily have the pitching depth that Florida has, so the Texas Tech is a very good hitting team. Arkansas is uh, playing really well right now, scoring some runs. So you got to have some of that magic, that postseason magic, but you got to be in the game uh, to make it happen. Uh, and I think the Gators can be because of that pitching. And it's one of the most interesting differences between the Women's College World Series and the Men's College World Series is that in softball, it's really just about having one pitcher. If you have one great pitcher, you can keep running them out there, if elimination game after elimination game, and just you know ride them in, until they drop. But in the case of baseball, you really have to have that complete staff. You have to have relief pitchers who can bridge an entire game because especially if you're in the elimination bracket, 
there's just too many games and too condensed a time period for you to be able to run out your aces more than once or, or maybe twice in an entire World Series. Yeah, that, without question, that's the biggest difference between the sports. And that's what makes baseball, you know, the st- strategic sport that it is because you are having to uh, shuffle and manage arms and uh, you're just hoping that you're doing it right. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan has a really good reputation at, at protecting arms and getting the most out of pitching that he has. And there's a art to that, knowing when a guy's ready. You know, like let's say they do get past Texas Tech, you got – Brady Singer coming back on four days rest instead of five. You know, it's just a different thing that they have to think about. You have to be in kind of in, on the same page with your pitcher. You got to prepare them a little differently in a tournament setting like this than during the regular season uh, when you have a, you know, a whole week to work with after each weekend series. So, but again, it's also what makes it, you know, a big old chess match. And eventually it's, it's going to come down to who's, who's got the most pieces at the end. Overall, what's it been like out in Omaha? It's hard to tell on TV. It seems like maybe some of the crowds aren't as big as we've seen them. I don't know how much that has to do with the weather and all of the, the shifting start times. But relative to your previous experiences, what has this one been like so far out in Nebraska? Yeah, there is a sense of discombobulation so far out here this time, Adam, because of, of the weather. It's just not been as fluid an event as the other ones I've been to. And then, of course, on Thursday, Friday, there's still some potential weather issues, uh, and it does, it has kept some of the crowds down. I mean, the weekend I thought uh, before the weather moved in, I thought you saw your typical crowds out here. Uh, from my experience, I mean, it looks like there's as many fans here. The streets are are busy. The restaurants are busy. I've seen my share Gator fans, uh, mm. which you know seem like maybe a little bit more than I have in the other years. Maybe them winning last year you know, help to gain some new fans out here in Nebraska or the Midwest. Uh, but uh, overall, I hope that they can, you know, the Mother Nature cooperates a little bit. That's what's going on in Omaha. Back in Gainesville, some news came out this week about some teams moving venues, some teams getting improved facilities, more of that commitment that we've talked about, the money going into making Florida the best of the best at the level it should be. Uh, Scott, tell us the latest in terms of those upgrades and improvements. Well, I think for the track and tennis, you know, it's resurfacing. I think it's about a two and a half million dollar project. I guess revitalizing the facilities. Uh, some, uh, you know, a track, for instance, they're getting ready to move the pits for all the jumps into the center of the track, that field where the soccer team has played on. Uh, they're resurfacing the actual track, something they do every few years to make sure it's uh, at the highest quality for the athletes to compete on. And that sends the soccer team, which they've been doing this for a while, Adam, now. They still play a few games each year at the uh, track stadium, but they've also been playing several in recent years over at the lacrosse uh, stadium, which which makes sense because it's it's got enough seats there to hold the soccer crowds. It's also a regulation field. There's plenty of room there. And, of course, the team's been practicing next door for a few years now. So it just gives them a little better space, I think, for what they need and gives them a more intimate stadium for fans. They're going to be closer to the field. And so I think there's some positives there. And then in terms of tennis, Adam, you know, it's another resurfacing, something they have to do every few years. But you've uh, in this day and age, I mean, we've certainly talked enough about facility upgrades at Florida uh, it seems like every week or two we're talking about them. You know, the big ones being the 
reconstruction of the softball stadium, the new construction of the baseball stadium that should break ground this fall, and then, of course, the football facility that will go up uh, once the baseball team relocates. So, you know, fans uh, will notice over time. They'll, they'll, a lot of the upgrades are going to be uh, aimed at them and uh, to hopefully make their experience better. Moving on to our PAT, coming up after we finish talking to you, fans are going to hear from Lauren Evans from the soccer team, a remarkable story of how during her freshman year, she suddenly and unexpectedly was diagnosed with leukemia, the battle she's fought, the courage that she's shown. It's it's really, really an incredible story, and I hope people uh, stay tuned to listen to that. But I'm curious, Scott, in your time, you've covered a lot of athletes, you've covered a lot of stories over the years. I want to know what stories like that resonate with you the most? Maybe an athlete, an individual who showed just a tremendous amount of strength and courage in some very difficult circumstances? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I'm, uh, I'll take one with an injury. First of all, you remember the former major league pitcher, Tony Saunders? Vaguely. Um, yeah. I mean, he was with the Devil Rays in their first few years and a left-hander. Anyway, he's pitching in the game and uh, his arm broke. Uh, he's kind of very reminiscent of Dave Gravecki, the former Padres uh, pitcher, but his arm snapped. I mean, you could hear it in the stadium. You can mm. see it. It was a gruesome injury. And, you know, a lot of people thought his career was going to be over. And yet through rehab, he came back and actually pitched in the majors again. Uh, the sad part was uh, the injury surfaced and he, he eventually had to, had to shut his career down. But, uh, that was one that just, you know, you just saw a guy who was such a promising part of the early stage of the franchise and a pitcher who, you know, evaluators thought really had a good major league career ahead of him. And he was only in his early to mid twenties when the initial injury happened, uh, yet overcame it. And, you know, I've been around baseball a lot more than most any other sport in my career. And, the one that really stands out, maybe beyond all others, if you're just talking about a comeback story, is Josh Hamilton. His problems were self-induced, I guess you could say. Yeah, very much so. But if you were around him when he was a 19 or 20-year-old kid, he was hard not to like. He just was a, a good guy, and he didn't have that aura of like, oh, I'm the next great chosen one. I mean, th- this guy was the prospect uh, around 99 and 2000, and got around some bad people and he went down a path. It was always great to see him come back. And then, of course, in 2008, he won the home run. Derby. Yeah, I, I believe set the record for most home runs in one round. Although as a result of that, he didn't end up winning <laughs> the thing because he, he burned himself out in the first round. Oh, good memory there. You got me on that one. I just remember it being a great story. And of course, he won the MVP one year. And uh, again, not a lot of people can overcome some of those uh, problems in life that he he encountered but in talking to lauren evans i've not talked to lauren i've read what chris harry has written i'll listen to what you you your interview with her i mean she certainly stands out in my time around florida's program is what a great story uh you know just to be able to uh, overcome some odds and obviously you know looks like she's getting healthy and going to be part of the program in the future uh you just always hope those stories have a good ending, and it looks like Lauren's uh, is well on its way to. Call it recency bias. I'm going to go Lauren Evans on this one, and you'll know why if you listen to her story coming up next. Uh, as far as what's next for baseball, stay locked into Scott for all of that coverage. He's got you at FloridaGators.com and on Twitter at GatorsScott. 
Florida will try and stay alive on Thursday night and then would have to win Friday, would have to win Saturday. It's a long road to the finals, but we shall see if the defending national champions make it back. Scott, thank you very much and continue enjoying your time in Omaha. All right. Thanks, Adam. Most freshman athletes have a hard enough time adjusting to balancing class, practice, and homework, but Lauren Evans had to overcome challenges that most couldn't imagine. Soccer became the least of her concerns when her world turned upside down during Thanksgiving, receiving a shocking cancer diagnosis that changed everything. But Evans showed that with great care and a phenomenal attitude, you can persevere over almost anything. We spoke to the effervescent Tampa native and asked her to start her story at the very beginning. Grew up in Tampa, and both my parents went to UF, so they raised me to kind of be a Gator. And I was getting offers from schools for soccer, and I kept telling myself that I didn't think I wanted to play soccer in college because I just wanted to go to UF. And then really late on, an offer came, so I decided to take it and play for the Gators. Going back a little bit before that, when did you get involved in soccer? How did you start playing the game, and and when did you decide to really devote yourself to it? I started with gymnastics, and I kept telling my parents that I didn't want to be doing an indoor sport. I wanted to do an outdoor sport. So uh, outside of my neighborhood, all the kids always used to play soccer. So I started playing in the street with a bunch of my friends. And then when I quit gymnastics, they all asked me to go play at their club. So I tried out for the soccer team and made it when I was like eight years old. Whenever athletes come from another sport, I always like to find out what parts of it translate. So are there any parts of gymnastics that have become part of of your soccer game? I think being strong and fit is the biggest thing, but I think you also have to be dedicated because with gymnastics, it was a lot of time. Like I had to spend like five hours every day at practice, but with soccer, you go almost every day of the week. So you really just have to be dedicated. You mentioned the family connection to UF, and that was a big reason why you wanted to come. Can you also talk about the coaching staff and specifically Becky and how that relationship developed over the course of your recruitment? Well, I was talking to a bunch of other schools, and the coaches didn't really catch my attention with anything. But with Becky, the way that she recruits, one big thing was developing character. And part of the recruiting process was seeing what type of character you were and which ways you learn. And that really caught my eye, and I like that she, a big part of her job is to make you a better person rather than just all about soccer. So you get to UF, and you're going through your freshman year. Tell us about how your freshman year was going up until the moment when things changed. What was it like when you were just a normal college freshman playing soccer? It was a lot better than I expected it to be. Uh, Those girls became my family, and the environment with being around all the athletes Felt like a like a huge family, basically. Every, everybody knew everybody. Everybody lived in the same area. The Hawkins Center, which is where the athletes go to study, felt like home almost. So it just felt like a like a new start almost of life. But I made my best friends in my freshman year of college. One of the reasons that we're talking to you right now is because of where that story turned and, and where your freshman year went down a different path. So I'm curious, when did that start? What, what were your first indications that something was wrong as you got toward the end of your, your first season? Well, we won uh, the Sweet 16 game to go to the Elite Eight to go to South Carolina. And right as we were getting onto the private plane to head there, I started feeling kind of sick, like a nauseous feeling on the plane. And I just thought maybe I was airplane sick. And then at the hotel, I still wasn't feeling all right. 
Thanksgiving. We were there over Thanksgiving time and I didn't eat anything all day. And then when we got back to school after we lost, I went to the doctor and they told me what was wrong. When you hear a diagnosis like that for the first time, what is that like in that moment? I mean, I can't imagine. I'm curious. How do you process something like that? Well, they told me that it could be leukemia or it could be a viral infection. So I was almost in denial because I I never get sick. So I thought this has to be an infection. Like it can't be leukemia because first of all, nobody in my family's ever had cancer and I just have never been sick. So I just was almost like sure that it wasn't cancer. I just thought it was an infection. When did you find out that it was cancer and how, how long did it take for them to give you that result? I found out that same day, but it took them like an hour and a half to be sure. They had to test my blood in like a certain way to be sure. And I almost don't remember the day they told me because my brain almost like blocks it out for me. But I just remember them telling me and I was with one of my teammates, my mom and my trainer. And I looked around to see their reactions at first because I thought I heard him wrong almost. And they were all so calm. So the first thing that went through my head was the fact that I was going to lose my hair. That was what I was really worried about. (laughs) I know another thing that you did pretty early on after this was looked up a lot of quotes related to cancer, things people have said that are impactful. Why Mm -hmm. was that important to you? And what were some of the, the most meaningful ones that you found? God gives his toughest battles to his toughest soldiers. And I thought that the reason that he gave it to me was because my story could um, help people out in the long run or other kids fighting cancer that play a sport because I know that if I put my mind to it, that I could beat it and be an inspiration to others. So just staying positive every morning, I would look up a quote just to keep my mind going and not to get too down or too frustrated when things didn't go my way because... In the long run, I want kids that play sports or kids that have something that means a lot to them that are going through this, that no matter what happens, you can still get through it and live your dreams. What was the the treatment like? I mean, if you can try and help people understand what you were going through, you get this diagnosis and then what happens next? Well, the first thing that happened to me was like three days in, I got a really bad fever and I almost couldn't breathe. So they sent me to the ICU. And they were like trying to put different levels of oxygen in and the highest level of oxygen wasn't helping. So they thought that they should just start chemo right then. And then people make chemo out to be a really bad thing. But it almost felt when I got the chemo, I started to feel better. So it was like kind of like my friend for a while. I wanted to get it. And then that was the first round. And then when I got my second round of chemo, it was when I was already feeling better. So it made me really nauseous and like I just felt really sick to my stomach every day. And then January 20th came and sometimes there's um, cancer in your spine. So they would put shots of chemo in my back to make sure that there was no leukemia still in my spine. Hmm. And that led to um, my nerves getting really annoyed. So they got all swollen and I lost all movement in my legs. So Hmm. I had to kind of slowly learn how to walk again. But the doctors at first thought I wouldn't be able to move them again because it was like weird symptoms. Like I couldn't feel anything in my legs and I couldn't wiggle my toes for like a really long time. So chemo kind of messed up my nerves and my back a lot. Now, when all this is going on, are you at the hospital constantly? Are you going back and forth? Are you are you living there? You know, what, what's that part of it like? 
Um, so there's a protocol for all different types, but mine was four months of treatment. If you stay in remission, it's at least four months. And so you do 10 days of chemo and then it's about 20 days to recover. So that's about a month. And then you get like a four day break at home. They let you go home for a little bit when your counts come back up and then you come back for round two and then you do 10 days of chemo and then you get 20 days to recover and then you go home again. And I did it four times. And when all this is going on, I'm sure your energy is very low. What are you doing to stay engaged? I mean, you're obviously very engaging. So what is it watching TV? Do you have enough energy to, to play games? And what do you do to pass all that time? Well, I had a physical therapist and an occupational therapist come to my room every day to help me kind of stay active and not lay in bed all day. And they would each come for like an hour. And then I got my mom to buy me crocheting stuff, knitting stuff, <laughs> coloring books, uh, anything, movies to just keep my mind off of things. Did you get heavily invested in any TV shows? Did you do any, any binging while you were going through this? I really like to watch How to Get Away with Murder while okay. I was in there. I'm right, I'm right there with you. That, that might hurt your head more because of all the twists and turns that make no I sense. I know, yeah, for sure, but it kept <laughs> me engaged. <laughs> I know that while this was going on, your family played a really crucial role. Even I think they, did they, get a, they got a, an apartment right near the hospital. Is that right? Um, they actually bought the apartment before I got sick. Uh, coincidence, almost. Oh, wow. So, but, but they were right there through all of this, I know. Yes, they didn't. They actually didn't stay in the apartment. They stayed. They laid on a cot in the room with me the whole time. For how long? For almost five months. They laid in a cot in a room for five months. Yes, on a twin-sized little cot. When and you, and your dad, you mentioned earlier they went to went to UF. Your dad played football at Florida, so I imagine sleeping in a cot was not very easy for him. But <laughs> no, what, it wasn't. But he did it for me. And I, I mean, I, I guess I know the answer to this, but I mean, what did that mean to you to have your family in that way supporting you? It meant the world, and they always told me that you're gonna realize one day, like that, you take your parents for granted. And then I just realized the, these past few months that family really does come first, and there's nobody there for you like your family is. We also have another family. You talked about them earlier, your teammates, your coaches, the whole Gator soccer family. What role did they play for you during this whole process? Well, they were the ones who really helped me get through it because at least one person from at least the football team, the soccer team, the basketball team, at least one person every day would come visit me to make me at least feel like I was still a part of the family and that I was still a part of the team and that they still didn't forget about me. So it still gave me like a inspiration to want to come back. You know, one of the most positive people I've ever met in my life is probably Becky Burley. So I'm curious what it was like having her alongside this process. And, and you seem to be, uh, in a lot of ways, just as positive as she is, just that energy and how that helped propel you as well. She was really good for my family. She always found ways to either bring me stuff to keep me occupied or she made like meals for my family, like meal plans so that they could not be always eating the same hospital food or just things like that. And she would always bring like little gifts just to let us know that she was there for us. And like, she was kind of like our mom getting us all through it, helping us out the whole time. Chris Harry has been chronicling your story on FloridaGators.com. And I think when he first did the story, I think it was Christmas Day, he actually put that out. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there was a, a huge outpouring of support and everything on Twitter and on Instagram and just the social media love you got from Gator Nation. And it's something I talked to Randy Russell about from the football team earlier this year when he went through his ordeal. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious what that meant to you. And, and did you have any idea the real depth of feeling there was in Gator Nation until you went through this? It meant a lot to me, for sure, and that people got to see my story and people were reaching out to me that I didn't really know, but they were big Gator greats uh, back then. And so it shows that it really is great to be a Florida Gator and that Gators really do take care of Gators. And I just feel like it really helped me out for him to put my story out there and it might even help other kids out in the long run. In terms of the the Gator greats that you heard from, uh, who was the most unexpected person that reached out to you during this time people that played with my dad like uh Dwayne Thomas Fred Taylor people like that reaching out to me it just meant like wow this is crazy that they see my story and even it means something to them I'm sure there's a lot of different answers to this question but when you look back on everything you've gone through what's been the most difficult part of all of this for you to overcome I think losing my movement and the doctors not knowing for sure what the symptoms were meaning or if it was going to come back because my biggest plan was to, I don't know if you heard about it, but it was a hell of a story. And it really like was hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that what if I can't move my legs again? It won't be a story. You know, there won't be an ending. So that was like the hardest thing for me to get my head around. But then when I was able to wiggle my toes again, the doctors were like that. Once you see a little bit of movement, that means it's all going to come back. So then I started getting more positive about it. But it was just hard to get up and learn how to walk again. Almost It was like you take things for granted that you don't even realize. But just being able to get up and throw my trash away or get up and put my dish in the sink just meant so much to me after I was able to walk again. As we're talking now, how far removed are you from this whole process you're talking about in terms of losing your movement, having to learn how to do that again? How, how long ago did all of this happen? Like April 20th, I took my first six steps. And after treatments on the 24th, I left to go to an inpatient rehab place for two weeks. And while I was there, I kind of was walking around with a walker. So, And now I'm walking on my own, going to the mall and driving. And I go to a uh, outpatient rehab place and I run on a zero gravity treadmill. So it's amazing. So I'll come I, back. yeah. The, and the most important question, I guess, is in terms of the leukemia, what is your status today? Um, I, my doctor says I'm in a deep remission. I mean, for people that don't know about leukemia, is this something that it, does this stay with you forever? Or is there a point where you can say once and for all that, that this is gone? So once a month, I go back. And then after a few months, if I still look clean, I'll go back once every two months. And after a couple months of that, then I'll go once every six months. And then I'll have to go once a year for the rest of my life. So it it never goes away. But obviously, it it gives you an incredible story to tell and one that you've told a couple of times, even in the last week. I know you, you came back to Gainesville and received an award at the Bob Dooley Invitational. It gave you the award for courage. What did that mean to you, and, and what was it like being at that event? Um, it definitely meant a lot with all the people there watching me, especially my doctor attended that. And just being able to receive the award from someone else who just beat the same type of cancer as me, it just shows that like you're not the only one going through it, and there's a lot of other kids out there that are going through it. And 
I really can't wait to see who beats cancer this year, I guess, and I get to give that award to them because I know beating cancer is like a huge thing. Mm-hmm. No question. I know something else you had a chance to do in the last week was you rang the bell on the cancer floor. Can you explain <laughs> the significance of that and why that is such a big deal? Well, one story I can tell is as I was ringing the bell, I saw two people, a husband and a wife, smiling, like the biggest smiles I've seen in a while. And after I finished ringing the bell, my doctors were all singing to me. My One of my doctors introduced me to the people that were smiling. And she told me that their two-year-old kid just got diagnosed with the same cancer that I had. And they were just so happy because they saw somebody finish and have a happily ever after that had the same cancer that their kid just got diagnosed with. And they said that it gave them hope that even though it's a bad thing, and it's the same type that their kid had, there's still a chance and you could have a happy happy ending. And it just meant a lot to me that even though they just had the probably the worst news they've ever gotten in their life, that there's still a chance and there's hope and that their kid hopefully can get through it. That's And that's why you tell stories like this, no question. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know a big reason why you've been able to tell this story the way you have is because of your positivity. And we talked about that earlier, but I'm curious, what allows someone to be so positive in such a terrible situation? Where do you think that that comes from? I definitely think that it was the way I was raised and the way that Becky taught us. Your mind almost takes over your body. So if you're positive, your body's going to be positive almost. I feel like that's what got me through it. Because once you're negative, your body gets like, your mind almost can make you sick, I feel like. So I just told myself, if I stay positive, I'll get through it. So I just did my best to always think positive thoughts. And even if something wasn't going my way, I tried to think of the best thing. So when I wasn't able to move, my doctors were telling me I was in remission. So I just wanted to focus on the fact that the biggest problem is taken care of right now and that I don't have cancer, but I just need to work on my walking. Well, the the final question I have for you, which I know is what a lot of people want to know, and they're obviously rooting for you to be back doing everything you want to do as soon as possible. But what does your immediate future like in terms of getting back to school and also trying to return to your soccer career? Um, well, I go back to school on July 1st, for sure. I moved back into the dorms. And then I'm um, just working on running and, and getting back to playing right now. So my goal is to be back practicing with the team by October full in full practice. Well, Lauren, given everything you've accomplished to this point and the battle that you've fought, I don't think anybody would bet against you being on the field for practice starting October. So we certainly will be rooting for you. We are wishing the best for you. And we thank you so much for joining us and telling your story. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow baseball as they try to stay alive against Texas Tech on Thursday night at 8 on ESPNU. Then come back next week as we'll have an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at TD Ameritrade Park.